Hi, everybody. Jimmy DeYoung here at Broadcast Central. Welcome to 90 Minutes of Information that will assist you in understanding how the prophetic scenario that is found in God's Word is so quickly coming together. I have six broadcast partners stationed all over the world. They will come with their reports to help us understand what I'm talking about. For example, David James is going to report on Pope Francis' visit to the Middle East, in particular to Iraq, and the Iraqi Christians are very much upset about that. You need to hear what David will tell us. Then Winky Madad, at the beginning of the next half hour of Prophecy Today, will talk about Saudi Arabia. They say there is no Islamic link to the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. Seems to indicate the Jews could go ahead, put their temple up on the Temple Mount. Those stories, plus many others, as we bring our broadcast partners to the table, we do that now with Ken Timmerman, the man who covers geopolitical activities across the world. Ken, here seems to be the lead story to me for this last week. China could invade Taiwan in the next six years and assume global leadership. That's according to a U.S. admiral warning that this could be the case. What do you know about this story? Uh, well, Jimmy, it sounds to me that Admiral Philip Davidson, who's the commander of the Indo-Pacific Command of the United States Navy, must be at the end of his tour. <laughs> he, he's been there at least two years, two, I think close to three years now. He must be near the end of his tour to become so candid in his testimony before Congress. The things that he said earlier this week are absolutely extraordinary, I think. Number one, he said that the threat to Taiwan by communist China is extreme. He said Taiwan is clearly one of their ambitions. He said that the threat is manifest during this decade, quote, in fact, in the next six years. So he is expecting an invasion of Taiwan within the next six years by communist China. That's Pretty interesting, and it kind of ups the ante for what's going on there. He also pointed out that China's Navy is now bigger than the U.S. Navy. They have over 350 surface ships. Uh, we may have better quality ships. We certainly have more aircraft carriers. They only have two today, but they're building another two, and the number four in that list will be their first nuclear-powered aircraft carrier. Now, people generally think of China as a regional power. You do not need a nuclear-powered aircraft carrier that allows you to stay at sea for, you know, basically forever without refueling. You don't need that unless you want to go beyond the South China Sea, beyond even in the Indian Ocean. You need that to steam around the world the way we do with our aircraft carrier group. So this naval expansion of communist China is very worrying. And one more thing. Let me tell you about Admiral Phil Davidson, is that he also was asked by Tom Cotton about China's nuclear weapons arsenal. And he told Cotton that if they quadruple their stockpile, they could outmatch the United States by the end of this decade. In other words, have more nuclear weapons at the U.S. Now, here's, the, here's what really got my attention there. By public assessment, 
right, public figures, the U.S. has around 6,000 warheads. The Chinese have around 300. But what he says, if the Chinese quadruple their, their warheads, they would surpass the United States, meaning with 1,200 warheads? No. What he was telling you is something that I've been tracking for the past 20 years, and that is reports, intelligence reports, that the Chinese have secretly been building nuclear warheads that they have not deployed, that they've kept in a, a series of tunnels that the United States military regularly reports uh, on to Congress. So we know about those tunnels, but it's been secretly stockpiling warheads there. And what Admiral Davidson, to me, was saying was that the Chinese probably have today around 1,200 warheads, not 3,000. And so if they quadruple that number, they will surpass the U.S. arsenal. That is really big news. You know, what really concerns me as well, Ken, is the fact that it seems the United States is losing their military edge in Asia as China looks like they're planning for a war. Is that a pretty definite scenario that I'm seeing, or is it incorrect? Well, remember, the Chinese would like to win conflicts without fighting them. They would rather not have to fight a war. And the way that you do that is by... Basically, it's peace through strength, <laughs> right? It's, been, it's the Reagan approach. It's also the Sun Tzu approach to military conflict. Deter your enemies with overwhelming force. So I think what the Chinese are trying to do here, by rapidly expanding their military capabilities in the South China Sea and in the area, is essentially to deter the United States from blocking their move to take over Taiwan, which they've told us again and again. I mean, there's no doubt that that's what they want to do. Their move to completely take over Hong Kong, which they've done at 90% already. So they basically want to deter us from intervening by showing us that the price of intervention would be way, way beyond what we are politically willing to pay. Let me make a connection now between China and the Middle East. We understand that uh, Saudi Arabia does not today, because of President Joe Biden, have a good connection relationship with the United States. I'm wondering, would that mean Saudi Arabia may start buying weapons from Russia and or China? Well, it's entirely possible, Jimmy, and it would not be the first time. Remember, during the Reagan administration, the Saudis secretly bought long-range ballistic missiles from China in 1985. This was something that really stunned the United States. We didn't find out about it for several years after the fact. Now, you mentioned President Biden. Joe Biden has announced publicly that he is going to scale back relations with Saudi Arabia, that he is going to cut off arms sales to Saudi Arabia. He does not like their war in Yemen. He has taken the Houthis, the Iranian-backed terror group in Yemen, off of the U.S. terrorism list. So Biden has made his intentions very, very clear. He also personally dislikes Mohammed bin Salman, the crown prince. And I've been looking into this very closely recently. He's made statements about the crown prince, which are really quite extravagant. They fear the Saudi crown prince for many reasons, number one being his determination along with the Israelis, to prevent the Islamic regime in Iran from going nuclear. The Biden regime wants to make a deal with Iran. They don't want to prevent them from going nuclear. They want to make a deal with Iran, a new nuclear agreement, but also to make a deal that will open up Iran to U.S. businesses. 
And so I think the U.S. and Saudi Arabia are on a collision course. So, yes, uh, they could buy weapons from China or Russia. And again, it would not be the first time, at least from China. Let me talk about Tayyip Erdogan, who is the lifetime president for Turkey. Looks like he and Vladimir Putin, president of Russia, are remotely starting some nuclear reactor construction there in Turkey. Is that a step towards making Turkey a nuclear-powered nation at this point in time, Ken? Uh, It is, and that is uh, Erdogan's goal, is to increase the ability of Turkey to produce energy from nuclear power reactors. It's not the same as nuclear weapons. It's nuclear power reactors. Yes, the nuclear fuel cycle, which, as far as I have seen so far, Turkey has not begun, would give them access to nuclear weapons. But they don't have that yet. It doesn't look like they have that yet. So this is the fourth reactor, I believe it is, that uh, Turkey has been building with the aid of Russian companies. And we say they remotely started the reactor. I mean, that's simply because they could not get together because of COVID travel restrictions to kind of cut the ribbon, if you wish, (laughs) beginning to build this reactor. But this is the fourth nuclear reactor that the Russians are building in Turkey. That then may well set the stage for them becoming a nuclear-powered nation. And that goes along with this story. Turkey signaling this week they have sweeping regional ambitions, and they even laid out a map of what they would like to control as Tayyip Erdogan moves towards being that pan-Islamic leader of the world. Not a good sign, is it? Well, it's a long-standing ambition. This is, the, this is the big picture, if you wish. We're looking at the telescope up at the stars, and this is looking at Turkey's grand ambition, at Erdogan's personal grand ambition of reviving the Ottoman Empire, reviving a Turkic-centric world in Central Asia, but also in the Middle East. And we've talked about this on this program, Jimmy, their push into Libya, which has been very strong, and it's been going on since... 2012, the Libyan Civil War. Turkey was was deeply involved in the Libyan Civil War. Well, today, remember, they have declared that uh, maritime corridor between Turkey and Libya, and they're trying to lay stake to parts of Libya. But this bigger ambition goes from Libya through the Saudi, the Arabian Peninsula, all the way up into Central Asia, into Azerbaijan, and across the top of the Caspian Sea over to Turkmenistan. Why is Turkmenistan called Turkmenistan? Well, guess what? Because they, like the Azeris, are a Turkic people. Their language is close to Turkish, and they have a historic affinity to Turkey. So this is, again, the revival of that Ottoman ambition of Erdogan's is very real. It is a long-term goal, and every year they are making progress towards that goal. And it is very significant prophetically, according to the word, the prophetic word of God. I'll deal with that when we take a look at the book at the end of the broadcast. Ken Timmerman, the man who covers geopolitical activities, has a brilliant mind, in my opinion. We want his analysis on these current events, and that's why we bring him to the broadcast table each and every week. Ken, thank you so much. We'll have another conversation next week. Thanks so much, Jimmy. It's always my pleasure. God bless. We're going to take a break, and when we come back, David Dolan has his Middle East news update. That's all ahead right here on Prophecy Today. (laughs) 
every believer needs to understand Bible prophecy. Whether you're a novice or a student, we are here to help you. Just visit prophecytoday.com and click on the link for the Prophecy Bookstore. There you will find a large selection of CD sets, DVDs, and books for the Bible Prophecy Student written by Dr. Jimmy DeYoung and other prominent scholars. While you're there, be sure to check out Dr. DeYoung's latest series called Presidents, Politics, and Prophecy. This series examines how God has used human leaders in general and specifically the last seven U.S. presidents to set the stage for Bible prophecy to be fulfilled. This was shot on location in Washington, D.C. and is available on DVD or as a 10-hour audio series on CD. Be sure to check back often for special deals. You can visit prophecytoday.com and click on bookstore or you can go directly to prophecybookstore.com. I want to remind you that I do have a website. It's prophecytoday.com. This is a full-service website. It will assist you in your study of Bible prophecy. For example, I have a prophecy bookstore with a number of materials that will help you as you study through the prophetic passages of God's Word. I have a number of books, DVD documentaries, and five-hour audio series on the subject of Bible prophecy. I have a prophecy Q&A section, and then I list the top 10 news stories on a daily basis. These are news stories that seemingly are setting the stage for Bible prophecy to be fulfilled. And I will give you a prophetic perspective on those news stories. That website that you should bookmark is prophecytoday.com. Hi everybody, Jimmy DeYoung here at the Broadcast Central Broadcast Table where I'm going to bring my next broadcast partner, David Dolan, to this microphone to give us information about the Middle East with his Middle East News Update, a central report for those of us who are students of Bible prophecy. We have other broadcast partners standing by in the second half hour. Winky Madad will talk about Saudi Arabia, and they say there's no Islamic link to the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. Very interesting. And then David James will talk about the Pope's visit to Iraq and the Christians in Iraq saying they are upset with the Pope and what he did with the Islamic leaders. David James brings that to the broadcast table, so keep the dial right where it is. Let's get now to the Middle East news update from David Dolan. David, we've talked about the Israelis. Potentially, they could launch a preemptive strike against Iran's nuclear program. Now, the Iranian defense minister is messaging back to Israel that if you launch a preemptive strike, Iran will take out Tel Aviv and Haifa. Oh, boy, that's a, a pretty dangerous pledge unless you think you can really do it. Well, Jimmy, it's a pledge that the Iranians have made repeatedly now over the whole last several decades, really. But right now, the possibility of a full-on conflict between Israel and Iran is very, very high. Military analysts are watching that. We have this shadow war already going on. And, Jimmy, on Friday, an Iranian ship said it was attacked in the eastern Mediterranean off of the 
port city of Haifa, not far away from it, and they implied that Israel was behind it. And a report came out in the Wall Street Journal earlier in the week that Israel has carried out about 12 strikes against Iranian ships, mostly taking illegally taking oil to Syria, trying to break the sanctions that the U.S. has put upon Iran by clandestinely selling Iranian oil to Syria. So these incidents are going on all the time. But for a major clash to occur, Israel is certainly saying, as I mentioned last week, again, the defense minister repeated it out loud, that plans are in place for an Israeli strike on the Iranian nuclear program if Israel deems that essential. The program has been sped up. The U.N. has uh, filed more complaints uh, during this uh, past week over Iranian violations and uh, hiding what they're doing and not allowing inspectors in and different things like that. The Europeans also now are very upset over that. So the stage is set for a major clash. Now, Haifa and Tel Aviv, those would probably be hit from Lebanon, and that's what concerns the Israelis most, is that the Iranians, as we've been talking about, have been upgrading Hezbollah missiles to precision-guided missiles, maybe a thousand of them so far, uh, of these missiles that could hit precisely targets. And uh, that is a very dangerous development. But, of course, Iran also has, and they've displayed this, ballistic missiles and uh, cruise missiles that could be launched from Syria or Lebanon or Iran itself or Iraq. They've got positions, or uh, Yemen even. Uh, The Houthi rebels, in fact, attacked an oil port a Saudi oil port during uh, last week, early last week, and did a lot of damage with these drones. So there's various methods that Iran could use to attack Tel Aviv and Haifa, and of course, ultimately, uh, a nuclear bomb could wipe out both uh, cities in a second, and uh, that's what Israel's trying to prevent. And meanwhile, Israeli jet fighters escorting an American B-52 bomber in a show of force to Iran as they flew over the Persian Gulf. Talk to us about that. Well, that's the second time the Biden administration has ordered uh, B-52s over the Middle East. Uh, President Trump had done that several times as well in the last half of uh, last year. And it is an important development. First, British fighter jets accompanied the uh, U.S. B-52s over the Mediterranean. Then, as you said, Israeli jets then flew up and accompanied them over Israeli territory. And then as they went down south over Saudi Arabia, Saudi jets were also involved in this uh, show of force. And then as they headed over the Gulf, The United Arab Emirates set up some of its aircraft to accompany these U.S. jets. So it was uh, designed to warn Iran that the U.S. is still around. It just takes a few hours to get those jets from the United States to the Middle East. And here are our allies that all have uh, significant air forces that can also join us in any operation. Of course, the target would be Iran, uh, a warning to the Ayatollahs. And of course, we had more Iranian-linked attacks on U.S. positions in Iraq over the past two weeks and other action in the Gulf. I could uh, spend 15 minutes just talking about 
this shadow war that's going on, but it's very significant. And, of course, that was an indication that the Biden administration, even though it wants to resume the nuclear talks with Iran, is also watching the military developments and ready to join its allies in a response if necessary. That is very reassuring, uh, certainly to the Israelis. David, talk to me about troops, Syrian troops massing at Israel's border there at Mount Hermon. Is that a a serious situation or what? Well, it's being taken very seriously by the Israelis, I can tell you that. They have felt for some time that there probably would be an armed clash with Syria at some point. The signs of that have been growing. And, of course, it comes as the head of CENTCOM, General McKenzie, from the United States, met in Tel Aviv on Friday with the defense minister and with uh, the chief of staff and other Israeli defense leaders. So they were probably discussing that situation, Iran in general, just growing signs, Jimmy, that we could be facing a clash uh, any time there. Well, and at the same time, the Biden administration restoring aid to the Palestinians and making the statement they want a two-state solution. What about that? Is that going to fly or not? Well, Jimmy, the Jerusalem Post on Friday had an interesting article about that, and it pointed out some things that I've mentioned before, that to restore aid to the Palestinians will not be as easy as the Biden administration may want. Uh, The Force-Taylor Act that was uh, the Taylor Force Act, actually, it's called, that was passed by the Congress a couple years ago, uh, restricts aid to the Palestinians if they continue to fund terror. That's still in effect. There was another law that was passed that makes the Palestinians liable for lawsuits over terror um, attacks that have involved Americans. Over $600 million in lawsuits are pending. Uh, If they reopen their embassy in Washington, they would become liable for that. And it points out some other obstacles in the way of that actually happening. So it may be the desire of the administration, but it is Congress again that has the purse strings of money, and Biden will have to deal with that. David, we've been able to observe the Biden administration What does the Joe Biden presidency actually mean for the Israeli peace process, the deals, the Abraham Accords, etc.? Well, they've expressed support for those accords, although they did freeze the sale of F-35 jets to Abu Dhabi. They've been wanting those for some time. And uh, President Trump, uh, former President Trump, signed that deal the last day in office. And now that's been frozen. But the overall accords are seen as a positive development for sure, something they won't go back on. And also, Jimmy, there were uh, plans announced for the U.S. to expand its embassy in Jerusalem to build a new five-story building right next door and to build a ten-story building down from the promenade uh, not far away in Jerusalem that would house more U.S. offices and apartments for U.S. personnel So again, on the ground, the ties are strong and continuing to grow while we have these political discussions about the Palestinians and that. By the way, Jimmy, the King Abdullah of Jordan urged Israel to give some vaccines for the coronavirus to the Palestinians. They just announced that they will be doing that. Well, that's good. I saw that information as well. And I think that Israel's most likely doing the right thing. There is a report that Turkey wants to renew relations with Israel. Somebody tells Israel, don't trust Turkey. Your thoughts? 
Well, I don't think they'll ever really trust uh, Erdogan, but uh, they did have very good ties with Turkey over the decades, and they would like to see those restored, but definitely they would keep their eyes open very much to see that uh, there's not some shenanigans going on behind the scenes. David Dolan, the man who covers the Middle East for us, his Middle East news update. You need to hear it each and every week. That's why we bring him to the broadcast table here on Prophecy Today in order for you to get his insight into these events happening in that key region of the world. David, thank you so very much, my good friend. We'll have another conversation next week. Glad to do it, Jimmy. God bless. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back at the broadcast table, will be Winky Madad. Saudi Arabia says there is no link between Islam and the Temple Mount. You need to hear this report from Winky Madad. It's all ahead right here on Prophecy Today. Have you always wanted to visit the land of Israel? Imagine what it would be like to walk in the footsteps of Jesus. With Joshua Travel, you can visit Israel past, present, and prophetic. The Bible will come alive as you see places like the shepherd's field where our Lord was born, Caesarea Philippi, Cana of Galilee, Capernaum, the Garden of Gethsemane, and the Garden Tomb. You'll even experience an exciting boat ride on the Sea of Galilee. You'll visit each site with Bible in hand as we take the time to not just visit the sites, but to help you understand their importance to our biblical heritage and to our prophetic future. We will place special emphasis on the eternal city of Jerusalem, the most important city in the world, and the place from where Jesus will rule and reign one day. Call Joshua Travel today at 423-821-3635 to find out more about this trip of a lifetime, or you can visit us online at joshuatravel.com. Hi everybody, Jimmy DeYoung here at Broadcast Central. Welcome back to this 90 minutes of information coming from broadcast partners around the world covering different current events that are helping us see how the prophetic scenario found in God's Word is coming better into focus moment by moment. We're going to go to Winky Madad, some late breaking news. Winky, here's what I want to talk to you about. A couple of items, a potpourri, may we say. Uh, Saudi Arabia is uh, saying that they are actually rejecting the Palestinian Authority claim to the Temple Mount because it's an embarrassment, it's a humiliation, and uh, they and do not want the Palestinians to have access to the Temple Mount, many other Arab nations joining with the Saudis in that. Can you give us more details about this story? As everybody should know, Jordan is ruled by the Hashemite family. Up until 1924, they were the ruling family in what we now know as Saudi Arabia and were the custodians of Mecca and Medina, the first two holy sites for the Islamic religion. Ibn Saud kicked them out, and they ended up all over the Middle East, Iraq, and other places. And all they have to hold on today is the fact 
that Israel, in signing the peace treaty with Jordan in 1994, granted special relationship to the Temple Mount without really defining it. If you look at Article 9 of the Jordan-Israel Peace Treaty on your computer, you'll see it talks very nicely about freedom of religion, freedom of worship, but it doesn't really define it. The religious Islamic trust on the Temple Mount, which we've discussed many times in the past, Jimmy, which is known as the Waqf, W-A-Q-F, is actually a part of the religious ministry of the Jordanian government. Saudi Arabia would very much like to replace Jordan as the custodian. Jordan realizes it really doesn't have too much uh, leverage, and so in between the Palestinian Authority and Israel government and Saudi Arabia, Jordan is playing a very interesting game here of who rules what. Well, as I hear you telling us what is going on, I think that it's very interesting that the Saudis reject any Islamic claim to the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. And I think I read something that said they were encouraging the Jews to go ahead and build a temple up there. Am I off base there, or is that pretty much on target? Well, I'm not quite sure, Jimmy, uh, whether that is an official Saudi Arabian policy or it may be some individuals or uh, intellectuals are trying to move that on what we call social media platforming, or maybe the Saudis are sending them out as as a test for the war, you know, to try the water uh, and to see what's going on. But it definitely is a very interesting development, especially in the background of what happened this past week when the crown prince of uh, Jordan turned around at the border on the Jordan River and did not come over to pray as he intended to do on the Temple Mount. Mm. Uh, One other item I want to discuss with you. There's a big debate going on here in the United States about the location of Herod's Temple and the next temple that the Jewish people are preparing to build there in Jerusalem. They are saying that it was in the city of David where Herod's temple was. Let me ask you a direct question. Where do you believe in your experience and knowledge and understanding of the temple? Where was Herod's temple located? According to my studies and learning, exactly where the Temple Mount is today, known in Arabic as the Haram al-Sharif, the noble sanctuary, it has not moved is exactly geophysically fitting to the rabbinical descriptions in the Talmud about the length and breadth and the fact that it's on the top of a mountain, or should I say, now that I'm talking to Americans, mostly top of a hill. But I do not think, and I cannot accept, after maybe over 50 years of studying the issue, that the location is where some people are trying to put it, closer to the city of David, which is way down in the valley. Well, talk to us about that, Winky. Why do you make that decision? I didn't know you'd been studying this subject for 50 years. Man, that's a a great time of really coming to an understanding of the truth. But why do you say it cannot be in the city of David? First of all, let's put aside any sort of 
in quotation marks, biblical knowledge. Very simply, the archaeological finds that have been discovered over over uh, half a century, including the ritual baths at the southern end of the current Temple Mount, the descriptions of the walls, the stone facing, the underground diggings that have been done, especially all along the western wall, all the way to the northern wall, underground, what we used to call the Hasmonean Tunnel, and other evidence combined with the fact that over the past almost 2,000 years, we have a constant testimony from Roman sources, from Jewish sources, from Byzantine, and then early Arab, Crusader, all point to the fact that the Temple Mount is where it is today, just above and behind the Western Wall. I had the opportunity back in the late 80s, I had a dear friend who was at that time head of the government press office, Morty Delinsky, and he had a friend named Mayor Bendove, who was an archaeologist, and they took me down for a special guided trip, just the two of them, into what you refer to as the Hasmonean Tunnels a moment ago. And down there in those tunnels, you could go the closest to what was the Holy of Holies there on Mount Moriah or the Temple Mount underneath that Dome of the Rock today. That's what I experienced personally myself. I'm sure you remembered both of those men. But why is there somebody here in America saying it had to be in the city of David? What's their reasoning behind that? Well, I I really wouldn't want to get too deep into any sort of psychological interpretations. You know, there are always people who want to be different. You have been in the Hasmonean tunnels. There are huge stones, masonry, cut beautifully down below. Obviously, someone worked very hard on the courtyards of, uh, of what was above in order to strengthen them, extend them both in directions. You have no area like that similar in the city of David. Any thought of perhaps, for example, perhaps you could say water is more plentiful closer to the Gihon stream. But we do know that there are troughs that came from the area of Bethlehem, or just south of Bethlehem, all the way to the Temple Mount. They were there for a reason. The water systems below the Temple Mount that have been mapped out in fact, the Smithsonian Institute has a study on it, and many other studies all indicate that this is the place that where uh, the sacrifices were needed to be washed away. This is where everything was done. There's nothing similar anywhere else in Jerusalem. Winky, when, and you know the players who are preparing to build that next temple uh, that will be, many think, in the very near future, up and standing and even operating there on Mount Moriah, the Temple Mount, where the Dome of the Rock is. But is it necessary that that temple be at that same location? And if so, why? We Jews go according to our legal religious texts. And, and Maimonides, who lived in the 11th century, makes it very clear that the site where all that happened in our Jewish history, where the altar was built, where David had purchased, where the zealots had fought the Romans, 
That will not change. The temple will be built in that area. We have, of course, the prophecy of Ezekiel, who extends it much larger than what's recorded in the Bible. But of course, again, that's in the prophetic future. But if it terms of very simple engineering design and instructions, everything belongs where it belongs, which is up on Mount Moriah, 260, 70 square meter area that will be divided according to the chambers and into the courtyards, as we have done. And that is what our duty is to do when the time is proficient. Well, the debate may continue here in America, but those of you living in the city of Jerusalem or in the area, and as you have been for 50 years, student of the temple, the past temples, the next temple to be put up, it's a place where God wants it to be, and God will play the big role in where that temple is rebuilt. Do you think not that to be the case? That is definitely the case. That is what all the instructions are. That's all the indications are at the present moment. And as we always say, man has to do the best he can based on his heritage and legacy, his relationship with God, and the historical element that will all point us in the direction, as you mentioned, of the third, what we call the third future temple in a redemption time. Thank you, Madad. You amaze me every single time I come to you with a subject or an issue that I think, well, nobody in the world knows the answers to these. Here you are studying this issue for over 50 years and able to be very articulate in your answers. Winky, thank you. Thank you so very much for helping to clear this up, and we appreciate it and looking forward to another conversation down the road with you. Jimmy, I want to thank you for having me on the program and wish you and our listeners goodbye. Now we're going to stay in Israel. We're going to be talking with Maurice Hirsch. Maurice is a part of the team, Palestinian Media Watch team, which is headed up by Itamar Marcus. You know, he's one of our regular broadcast partners here at Prophecy Today. Uh, But Maurice recently wrote an article, a very comprehensive article, about what's going on with the ICC, the International Criminal Court. I thought it was important enough that we needed to discuss it, and I thought Maurice would be the man to do that. Maurice, let me just ask you, first of all, define for us, our listeners who may not be familiar Who is the ICC, the International Criminal Court? Okay, so the International Criminal Court was set up. The idea came uh, to fruition of setting up a a constant court that would deal with international war crimes. Dealing with war crimes had always been a situation of the winner takes the spoils and the winner also puts the other side on trial. And often it was the case that, that war crimes were committed and no one really paid Uh, was always held accountable for them. So the idea was to set up a court that would be impartial, that would be independent, that would look at the the most serious of offences and be a court of last resort when all other possibilities for holding war criminals to account had been already used and wasted and, and not really brought any results. The court would step in. That's the idea of the International Criminal Court. Unfortunately, Immediately, while it was already being discussed, 
setting up its statute, its basic um, document, which really defines how the court works and the offenses that, that would be relevant for the court, it was already clear that this was going to become a very political court. And there were political offenses put in, um, which had nothing to do with war crimes, but that was just the way that really the court was hijacked from its original, really altruistic ideas until, until its current position today. Well, as I understand, they have charged the state of Israel, or maybe some personnel in Israel, with a international criminal crime. Can you explain what the charges against Israel are a personality? Which is it, the state or a personality? So the court is a criminal court, which means that there has to be suspicions and indictment against specific people. It's not an indictment of the state of Israel. That's not something that's going to happen. But what they have done is that at this stage, they've opened an investigation into events and activities that they claim are a breach of international law and the crimes that they're going to be looking at as part of the investigation. But just to give you an idea of, of, of what we're talking about, on the one hand, we're looking at Hamas, terrorist organizations, indiscriminately firing missiles at Israel, at Israel's civilian population, and then Israel responding and defending itself. We suddenly become the criminals as part of defending ourselves. That's on the one hand. On the other hand, one of the more political offenses that was put into the, the statute of the court was the offense of transferring your civilian population to an occupied area. Well, we're talking about Jews living in Judea and Samaria, returning to their ancestral homeland. Imagine, Jimmy, that we're talking about Jews living in Hebron, who have been in Hebron for 2,000 years, come along the Arabs and they massacre the Jewish community in Hebron in 1929. Jews leave until 1967 because they can no longer live there. They come back to their own properties. That is now a criminal offense for the International Criminal Court. That's the things that we're looking at. Maurice, the other day I heard Secretary of State Tony Blinken, who is, of course, the leader in a Joe Biden cabinet as far as it relates to foreign policy. He made the statement that the ICC has no jurisdiction over Israel. Is that actually the case? It is 100% the case, correct, as a legal fact. Really, the court is meant to be a court for states. The Palestinian Authority is not a state. There is no state of Palestine. It should never have been allowed to join the court. In the decision of the court that was recently given, the court agreed with that argument, said that there is no state of Palestine except for the sole purposes of opening the investigation into Israel. By the way, your article can be read by going to palwatch.org, P-A-L-W-A-T-C-H, palwatch.org. You can read the entire article by Maurice Hirsch. And the article, Maurice, states that there is collusion, actually, between the ICC and the Palestinian Authority. Are they working together? Can you give us all the details? So the prosecutor of the court is meant to be this independent body that looks objectively at any given situation and identifies potential criminals. Criminals, criminals. When you're a prosecutor and you're looking at the criminals, the prosecutor doesn't collude with the criminals. The prosecutor doesn't rely on, on, on the criminals to feed them information. They have their own system, which is meant to investigate, 
And every person who's meant to be afraid, every person who's committed a crime, should feel that fear of the court. The Palestinian relationship with the prosecutor, with Fatou bin Souda, is such that the Palestinians have met with her, as the foreign minister described, on a constant basis since they joined the court in 2014, to the point where even before she made public her decision to investigate, and technically that investigation should also include an investigation of the Palestinian terrorists and, and even the Palestinian Authority for its payments to terrorists and rewarding of terrorists, it appears from the, the statement of the PA foreign minister that the prosecutor gave them prior notice of her decision and because of their close relationship simply asked them to keep it a secret. Maurice, I've got to tell you, bottom line, as far as I'm concerned, after reading your article and then having this conversation with you, looks to me like the ICC and the Palestinian Authority, plus the Palestinian terrorist organizations, are working together to try to destroy the Jewish state of Israel. Is that pretty much on target? It's exactly that. It's called lawfare. Using the legal systems all over the world, international legal systems, as a means and a method to attack, delegitimize, and really putting the main goal of the destruction of the state of Israel into the legal system to destroy the legal system from within solely to serve the purpose of the Palestinian cause. I've got to tell you, Maurice, I'm very much concerned about this. It simply is going along with the philosophy of the Palestinians, their desire to wipe Israel off the face of the earth, replace it with possibly a state, as you said, no state now called Palestine, but they would like to have that, wipe Israel out and then replace on that piece of real estate a state called Palestine. Maurice, thank you so very much for helping us to understand better what's going on there in Israel as it relates to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Appreciate this conversation. Thank you, buddy. Thanks for having me. Stay safe and stay well. Right now, we're going to change to another region of the world. We go from the Middle East to the European Union. John Rood, who lived in Brussels, Belgium, for over 30 years, has great insight into what does happen each and every day politically in the European Union. And John, uh, let me say that I do believe we talk about Iran quite a bit here on this broadcast, and it looks like right now that the European Union is losing patience with Iran and their nuclear ethics that are taking place. The European Union is uh, saying they're losing patience with Iran. Uh, what took so long? Now that the idea that Iran has increased their uranium enrichment, the United States is coming on the scene and trying to put this uh, deal together, which we call the Iran nuclear deal. But uh, why put a deal together when it's clear that they haven't even uh, kept the deal in the past? Iran is really a player here playing the European Union against the United States. The nuclear deal was from 2015, but it's over. But Europe has acted as if it's on all the time, and then Iran just uh, really uses the European Union in this regard. So if the European Union is really... Uh, 
fed up with the entire uh, deal here. It appears that uh, the United States is, could also have very serious situation, improbable possibly, to reinstate the Iran deal. And this is what Iran is leveraging right now. John, we have not talked about Brexit for a long time, uh, but headlines this week, Global Britain's post-Brexit gamble seems to be backfiring as China and the European Union are leaving the UK behind. What's the latest on that? Well, there's a balance in this. China has been making a move on the EU because obviously that's 27 nations, and China and Britain have clashed in recent weeks, stopping permission for uh, you know various satellite news and so forth. So Britain has made a decision to work hard and to you know face the challenges which they knew would be there. Prime Minister Boris Johnson is looking to actually have the group of seven nations to be converted into a type of democratic tent. And so that would be another sign of a rivalry against China. So uh, unusual in this piece, it says that the U.K. would even consider re-entering the EU. I wouldn't see that at the moment, but if they did so, then they would have to give up the British pound. So let's trust that this whole thing is not full circle. Uh, I believe Britain is at, at peace with their decision, but they're facing challenges. We often talk about Turkey, though they are not a member in the European Union. They are a part of NATO, which is the military operation for the EU. Turkey, this last week, seems to be signaling a sweeping regional ambition all the way from Southeast Europe to Central Asia. Those ambitions for Tayyip Erdogan wanting to be the Islamic leader the pan-Islamic leader of the world. Give us the latest. Yes, the regional ambitions of Turkey have never subsided, but they come to surface fairly regularly. The latest issue was a map that had come out from George Friedman's book, The Next 100 Years. Uh, He's the founder of Stratfor, which was sort of a pay-for-intelligence-type organization, They have many, many good things. I've read the book, The Next Hundred Years, and it's just a projection. But it shows that the Turkish influence and the map of Turkish influence in 2050 is essentially the entire Middle East, all the Middle East except Israel and Iran. And so it's sort of turning heads in Iran and then as well in Russia because this paves way if Turkey has the influence in that entire southern region of the of the former Soviet republics, then they can basically take from Central Asia all the way to Turkey and uh, expand their influence at the expense of Russia. So now Russia and uh, Turkey are at a bit of a confrontation because of Turkey's reference to this map, which is published from this intelligence organization. Interestingly, John, there is news coming that Greece, Cyprus, and Israel are signing a Euro-Asia interconnector deal. Now, let me explain what that means. It's a linking of the electrical grids of all three of these nations, Greece, Cyprus, and Israel. Looks like some type of an alignment there coming together as well. 
Yes, there's some major projects going on under the sea. I was in Djibouti one time, and there was a crew laying optical cable from uh, United Arab Emirates throughout the Middle East. This is very interesting, though, because Israel is included. So Greece, Cyprus, and Israel having an interconnector, Euro-Asia interconnector of electric grid, a cable which would be the deepest, and the longest ever constructed. So it's nearly a $1 billion uh, at the moment. It appears the biggest benefit right away is that it ends the isolation for electric production for Cyprus, and then the main sections are going to be a connection between Israel and Cyprus, Cyprus and Crete, Crete and mainland Greece. So there's enough of the EU involved. The EU has said that they will uh, partially fund the project. But the ultimate purpose of this is a backup power system. So very interesting that Israel has this connection with Cyprus and Greece as a backup power. Yes, very, very interesting. Well, it's a part of the political activities that take place in the European Union and every connecting story that we can come up with, in addition to the fact that then that political is setting the stage for the prophetic. And that's the reason we bring John Rood to this broadcast table. John, thank you so much. We'll talk again next week. Thank you. My pleasure. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, one more broadcast partner. That's David James, the Christian community in Iraq, quite upset with the visit by Pope Francis. You need to understand the reason why. David will explain that to us in the next portion of Prophecy Today. Hi everybody, Jimmy DeYoung here at Broadcast Central as I have been for the last hour. Give me another half hour. We'll conclude with our conversations as the broadcast partners come to tell us what is going on in this world. David James will report that the Christians in Iraq are upset because of the visit to Iraq by Pope Francis. We'll get to that in a moment. My poll question found on my homepage, prophecytoday.com. On the left-hand column as you scroll down, here's the question. China now has the largest navy in the world and is quickly becoming the number one economic power in the world as well. Do you believe these facts confirm that China will be a major force in the end of times as foretold in Revelation chapter 16 and verse 12. Now that's the poll question. Please answer it. And don't forget to pray for us here at Prophecy Today as we reach around our world with the information of the soon coming of Jesus Christ. And in those prayers, consider what the Lord would have you to give to support this ministry. That's prophecytoday.com. We now bring to this broadcast table David James. David and I endeavor each week to give you biblical principles that will help you stand up and deal with the issue that we are discussing in our conversation. David, this week, I want us to answer a listener question. He has a question about the need for Jews and Gentiles to be born again, and then whether Gentiles actually 
become spiritual Jews when they are saved? This is a question that many have. I am looking forward for you helping to inform us from the Word of God. Sure, Jimmy. Well, our listener wrote this. 1 Corinthians 10.32 clearly says there are three kinds of people. So does this mean that Jews must be born again and that Greeks must be born again? I think the term Greeks covers a lot of nationalities. And then finally she asked, does being born again mean that we are Jews spiritually? So, Jimmy, in the Old Testament, those who weren't descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are called goyim in the Hebrew, which is usually translated as either nations or Gentiles in English. Then in the New Testament, Gentiles and nations translate the Greek word ethnos, but sometimes the word for Greeks is used interchangeably with Gentiles, and so generically it just means someone who isn't Jewish. Now back to 1 Corinthians 10.32, Paul says, Give no offense either to the Jews or to the Greeks or to the Church of God. So the Church of God is made up of ethnic Jews and Gentiles who are born again. And in Romans 10, Paul makes it clear that both Jews and Greeks must hear, understand, and believe the gospel of Jesus Christ in order to be saved. And concerning whether Christians are Jews spiritually, the simple answer is no. First, the Church doesn't replace Israel and God's program. Uh, But secondly, we're spiritual descendants of Abraham only. We aren't spiritual descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, which would be required for us to be Jews spiritually. You know, over the years, David, we've covered uh, Pope Francis doing some of his speeches there at the Vatican and then traveling around the world. I introduced our segment about we wanted to discuss the Pope's visit recently to Iraq. And we've done this several times over the years, but uh, this time it's because of his recent trip to Iraq, as I mentioned, and his meetings with the Islamic clerics. Discuss that with us. Sure, Jimmy. This was the first trip by any pope to Iraq, and it was Pope Francis's first trip outside of Italy since the start of the COVID pandemic last year. And as reported by the BBC, Iraq, which has seen more than 13,500 deaths with COVID-19 and more than 726,000 cases, has recorded a sharp rise in infections over the past month. So the Pope and his entourage had all been vaccinated. And CNN reported that the Pope told journalists traveling with him on the papal plane This is a symbolic trip. It's a duty. It has been a martyred land for too long. And then the Washington Post began an article on the visit this way. With cheering, partially masked crowds, and armed security lining the roads, Pope Francis began the first-ever papal trip to Iraq on Friday, seeking reconciliation in a country with an extraordinary biblical history, a surging coronavirus outbreak, and ongoing political turmoil. And then the article continued... He called for cooperation among ethnic groups in the palace once used by autocrat Saddam Hussein. He called for an end to religious violence in a church where 10 years earlier gunmen had killed 58 people, leaving flesh on the fuse. And then the article also noted that Pope Francis said, I come as a pilgrim of peace. You know, earlier this week, David, I sent you an article from Jihad Watch website. They talked about how Iraqi Christians are actually concerned that the Pope's visit did not help them at all. Explain that. 
Well, you're right, Jimmy, and it, it honestly doesn't surprise me. Uh, that Jihad Watch article you sent me had the title, Iraqi Convert to Christianity, Muslims are triumphantly declaring that the Pope has surrendered to Islam. And then the rest of the article was actually from a different article on a Roman Catholic website called churchmilitant.com, and that article was titled, Pope's Trip Leaves Collateral Damage. Now, quoting a convert to Christianity named Nasser Azah, the article said, Pope Francis' Iraq trip has triggered a tidal wave of mockery on social media with Muslims gleefully announcing that the Pontiff has surrendered to Islamic supremacy. And Azah went on to say, the Kurdish response to Francis on the final day of his visit has been largely negative, as many Kurds see the Pope as a person who flatters wicked people like President Erdogan, that's Erdogan of Turkey. And I couldn't find out whether Azar is Catholic or evangelical, but he said this too, only small pockets of Catholics who are influenced by evangelicals are engaged in evangelization. Then he went on to say, the collateral damage for evangelism among Muslims will be monumental. And he said that the mockery is incredible, as the Muslims say Francis is bowing to Muhammad as his prophet. And one interesting thing about this article is that churchmilitant.com was founded some 50 years ago as a quote-unquote media enterprise established to address the serious erosion of the Catholic faith in the last 50 years. David, one of the things that we often hear is that since Allah is simply the Arabic name for God, and both Christianity and Islam are so-called Abrahamic faiths, then Christians and Muslims are actually worshiping the same God. Your information is going to be key in understanding the answer to this question. Well, Jimmy, in today's world, the idea that Christians and Muslims worship the same God is certainly a prevalent view. Theconversation.com has an article titled, In Spite of Their Differences, Jews, Christians, and Muslims Worship the Same God, and that article goes on to say, It's often assumed that the God of Islam is a fierce, warlike deity, in contrast to the God of Christianity and Judaism, who is one of love and mercy, and yet, despite the manifest differences in how they practice their religions, Jews, Christians, and Muslims all worship the same God. And that article continues with this, Since Muhammad inherited the Jewish and Christian understandings of God, it is not surprising that the God of Muhammad, Jesus, and Moses has a similarly complex and ambivalent character, a blend of benevolence and compassion combined with wrath and anger. However, Jimmy, an article on the Columbia International University website presents a very different picture, noting this, Allah is a generic term for the highest God, and in Arabia it was used for centuries before Muhammad came on the scene. And that article also notes that Allah was apparently one of the 360 gods worshipped in the Kaaba in Mecca and was the chief god of Muhammad's Quraysh tribe. So, Jimmy, although Arabic Christians also use Allah as a generic word for God, they realize that the Allah of Islam is not the same God they worship, because for Muslims, God has no son, while for Christians, including Arabic Christians, Jesus is Allah. So Yahweh and the Allah of Islam are absolutely not the same God. 
David, I think you and I would both agree this pope seems to have one of the most ecumenical mindsets of anyone who has ever held that position. What are some of the things that he said over the years that give insight into how he thinks actually about salvation in general? Well, in 2018, at the 70th anniversary of the founding of the World Council of Churches, Pope Francis said this, I wanted to take part personally to reaffirm the commitment of the Catholic Church to the cause of ecumenism. And he continued by saying, whenever we say our Father, we feel an echo within us of being brothers and sisters. So Pope Francis speaks as if all Christians are truly brothers and sisters in Christ, which is at the heart of ecumenism. Uh, Back in 2016, at the Great Synagogue of Rome, he said this, With this visit, I'm following in the footsteps of my predecessors. Pope John Paul II came here 30 years ago, and on that occasion he coined a beautiful expression, elder brothers, and indeed you are our elder brothers and sisters in the faith. We all belong to a single family, the family of God. So, Jimmy, he sees Jews as well as spiritual brothers and sisters in the Lord. Then in uh, 2017, CNN ran an article with the title, Pope suggests it's better to be an atheist than a bad Christian. And in a homily, Pope Francis said this, If you're a Christian who exploits people, leads a double life, or manages a dirty business, perhaps it's better not to call yourself a believer. So many Christians are like this, he said, and these people scandalize others, but to be a Catholic like that, it's better to be an atheist. And then back in 2015, the Pope wrote this in a letter, you asked me if the God of Christians forgives those who don't believe and who don't seek the faith. I start by saying that God's mercy has no limits if you go to him with a sincere and contrite heart. The issue for those who do not believe in God is to obey their conscience. David, I I do believe that many of these things that we've been discussing, and those listening to it, they would believe in their hearts and minds, they probably have in times implications. And of course, there are a number of people who tend to think that the Pope will be the Antichrist. Now, from the Word of God, what are your thoughts on this from a biblical perspective? Well, Jimmy, even going back to the Reformers, uh, many thought the Pope is the Antichrist, but John says in 1 John that the Antichrist is someone who denies that Jesus has come in the flesh, but Roman Catholicism affirms Jesus' deity. And one reason people think the Pope will be the Antichrist is because of the harlot in Revelation 17. Now, I do think the false prophet could be the Pope, but the Antichrist will be a political and military leader who will rise from obscurity, the little horn of Daniel 7, and he will revive the Roman Empire based on chapters 2 and 7 of Daniel. But my guess is that many don't realize there will actually be two world religions during the tribulation period. The first global false religious system seems to be centered in Rome, as described in Revelation 17, which is a global apostate ecumenical Christianity, it seems, with perhaps a Roman Catholic foundation, which will likely absorb most uh, other religions around the world. But in Revelation 17:16, we read this, And the ten horns which you saw on the beast, these will hate the harlot, make her desolate and naked, eat her flesh, and burn her with fire. So the leaders of the revived Roman Empire will destroy the first world religion around the midpoint of the tribulation, 
Then the second world religious system begins when the Antichrist defiles the rebuilt temple in Jerusalem, as described in Daniel 9 and Matthew 24, and he will declare himself to be God, as foretold in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. And this all happens after the rapture, and the world is being prepared, and the stage is being set for what's coming. The information that we are able to pass along to you when we discuss a particular issue confronting the body of Christ is biblical in its foundation and prophetic significantly for the issue as it sets the stage for Bible prophecy to be fulfilled. That's why I do believe this segment of Prophecy Today Weekend is key for our listeners. David, thank you for the research. Thank you for the information. Appreciate it. Uh, Come back and join me next week for another discussion on another issue. I'll look forward to it, Jimmy. We're going to have to take a quick break. When we come back, I'll take all the reports from my broadcast partners, put together each and every report, and we'll take a look at them as we look at the prophetic perspective from the Word of God. That's all ahead right here on Prophecy Today. Hey everyone, this is Dave James with the Alliance for Biblical Integrity. You hear me each week discussing current theological issues with Jimmy DeYoung on the Prophecy Today weekend broadcast. We founded the Alliance for Biblical Integrity because we saw a need for an apologetics and discernment ministry that would be an important resource for local churches, schools, and ministry organizations that face ever-changing theological challenges in today's world. I teach many different courses and seminars in the United States and around the world and can tailor the seminars for Sunday schools, Bible studies, and church services, and the courses for weekend conferences of 6 to 10 hours. For more information, you can go to the ABI website at biblicalintegrity.org. That's one word, biblicalintegrity.org, and click on Courses and Seminars on the main menu. You can also contact me personally through the contact page on the ABI website. I look forward to hearing from you. The book of Revelation is God's final word to man and the timeline of the last days revealed to the Christians. This symbolism-filled example of apocalyptic literature can be difficult to understand, especially when simply reading it from beginning to end. Dr. Jimmy DeYoung's latest book, Revelation, A Chronology, takes a walk through the prophetic book of Revelation in the order that the events will take place, chronologically, sharing insights into its true meaning and doing so in an easy-to-understand and practical way. If you have difficulty understanding the book of Revelation, get your copy of Revelation, A Chronology, and let Dr. Jimmy DeYoung aid you in your understanding of this profound end-times prophecy book that God has preserved in His Scriptures for Christians in the last days. To order your copy of Jimmy D. Young's Revelation, a chronology, call us toll-free at 877-674-3298 or visit our website at prophecytoday.com. It's time right now here on Prophecy Today for us to take a look at the book. Today on Prophecy Today Weekend, My broadcast partners came to the broadcast table to give us reports on key regions and locations of our world as it relates to the prophetic scenario found in the Word of God. They do this so that you and I can be abreast of how the world is quickly moving in the direction 
that will set the stage for God's prophetic scenario to be fulfilled. As you were able to hear these reports today, we can come to a realization where we are in God's plan for the end times. And by the way, should you have had to miss any of these reports, please go to my website, prophecytoday.com, and then to PTRN, Prophecy Today Radio Network. It's on the right-hand column as you scroll down. That's prophecytoday.com, Prophecy Today Radio Network. Now, let me give you my prophetic perspective on all of the reports. Ken Timmerman, who covers geopolitical activities in the world, talked to us about China, who could assume global leadership, especially now that they have the largest navy in the world. According to Revelation chapter 16 and verse 12, China, as one of the kings of the East, will be a major force just prior to the return of Jesus Christ. That's not the rapture, but seven years after the rapture, the return of the Lord. China will also be in partnership with the Antichrist at that time and go to Jerusalem to try to stop the return of Christ. That's Revelation chapter 16, verses 13 to 16. David Dolan gave us his Middle East News update a must-listen-to item on our weekend program. You know, the Iranian defense minister is saying that if Israel does launch a preemptive strike on Iran's nuclear program, Iran will destroy Tel Aviv and Haifa. The Iranian-Israeli conflict is only a portion of the alignment of nations called for by Ezekiel 38, Psalm 83, and Daniel chapter 11 that will take place at the beginning of the seven-year tribulation period. I can tell you this, Iran may win a battle, but Israel will win the war. That's according to Ezekiel 38, verse 18, through chapter 39, verse 6, when the Lord intercedes to protect his chosen people, the Jewish people. Winky Madad is always on topic with the latest information coming out of the Middle East as we have a conversation with him. This time we talked about Saudi Arabia does not see a link between Islam and the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. I would then think that means the Jews can go ahead and build their temple on the Temple Mount. You know, the holiest site in Islam is not the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, but instead it is the Kahaba in Mecca, Saudi Arabia. The Saudis want all of Islam to acknowledge that by praying five times a day facing towards Mecca. With the Palestinian claim that Al-Aqsa Mosque on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem is in total contradiction to what the Saudis say. The Saudis say no connection, therefore, as I said, the Jews might as well go ahead and build their temple there. 
We talked about the true location of Herod's temple some 2,000 years ago and the site for the next temple, the ones the Jews are preparing to build today. Let me just go back in history with you. About 3,000 years ago, Solomon's temple was built on Mount Moriah. That's Second Chronicles chapter 3 and verse 1. When Zerubbabel brought the Jewish people back into the land, they built his temple, ultimately to be called Herod's temple, and it was built in the exact same place of Solomon's temple. And as you look forward to Messiah's temple, the one that Jesus Christ will build, it is also located there on Mount Moriah at the same location of Solomon and Herod's temple. That's Ezekiel chapters 40 to 46. Maurice Hirsch, who is with Palestinian Media Watch, talked about the ICC, the International Criminal Court, and the Palestinians teaming up to destroy the Jewish state. You know, as you trace the Palestinian people through the Bible from Genesis chapter 25 all the way to the little book of Obadiah, you'll see that the ultimate goal for the Palestinian people is to destroy the Jewish state and replace it with a Palestinian state. That's found and foretold by the ancient Jewish prophets in Ezekiel 36, verses 5 and 10, and the book of Malachi, chapter 1. That's the motivation behind the Palestinian effort to destroy the Jewish state. And David James came to the broadcast table to talk about an issue confronting the body of Christ with me. Our conversation was focused on the Christian community in Iraq, upset because of the visit to Iraq by Pope Francis, which will hinder them from leading Muslims to Jesus Christ, and they see it as stage setting for Revelation chapter 17. Remember, Revelation 17 foretells of a one-world religion headquartered in Rome. The Pope's travel to Iraq and his meeting with Islamic leaders seem to be setting for that prophecy, Revelation 17, to be fulfilled. Every report from my broadcast partners gave us information that is evidence of where we are on God's calendar of prophetic events. That evidence is very strong, indicating that we are quickly approaching the next event, the rapture of the church. And in fact, that rapture could actually happen today. So let's keep looking up until... Thank you so much for joining us today. This is Jay Johnson inviting you to join us again next week for more of Prophecy Today. 